So um, one thing that I was thinking of is when I was younger, my father, he was always doing some kind of jobs around the house. And uh, if anybody knew my dad, you never knew what to expect. So, you know, there was always something with that. But um, when he was working on projects and if he ran into something that he didn't, he couldn't get or um, something that a, t- a piece of equipment or something in the house that wasn't working and all tools he had tried were not working, he would get out the hammer. And, you know, the hammer was always the tool that ended up, you know, I don't know if it took out his frustration or what it was, but it was always the tool of many uses in our house. So, you know, whenever things didn't work, we're like, you want the hammer? We'll get you the hammer, right? So when I was younger, I had this vision. I said, God, during my life, I don't care what I do, but I want to be that one tool that you use that's going to be useful in all cases. And I want to be the one where you see the handle on that tool and you see it worn with your hand. So I've said that. And so then when Aaron asks me to speak, I'm thinking, okay, God, I asked for this. You know, I asked for to be the tool. So I started talking to Aaron about a couple months ago about things that I was getting. And um, we've been talking about it. And so when Aaron was thinking about leaving, he asked me if I would share some of this. I have two different things that I was thinking of, and so I'm going to do two different sermons. So I'm giving you a commercial for the second sermon. So here's my commercial. Um, Come back April 5th and find out how to live naked in the world. So that'll give you guys a little teaser when you come back then. Okay. So normally when... um, Aaron preaches on Sundays. I'm with the kids. And so I download his sermons on iTunes and and I listen to him on the way to work or when I'm walking. So normally I don't see the visual effect of a lot of his sermons. But because I have two wonderful workers that will work in the um, kids room once a week, I I mean once a month, I was able to listen and watch one of the sermons that Aaron did. And this was the one with Forrest Gump and it was... Um, a slide that he had shown during that sermon. And when this slide comes up, and how many of you guys know that Aaron's got a lot of revelationary stuff? I mean, you just sit there and you're like, hold on. And he he talks and you get so much. But sometimes one slide, it's enough to communicate a thousand words. You know, it's kind of like that one picture that communicates a thousand words. So when Aaron showed this slide in the box of chocolates, Um, it hit me like a a lightning bolt. I mean, this slide hit me hard. And I immediately understood what this was saying to me because Aaron was saying that this was us sometimes angry at life. And I looked at that slide and I thought, holy cow, that's me. I'm holding on to life and I'm an angry person. I'm the one that's sitting there grabbing life by the shirt and saying, what? Are you kidding me, life? Why would you do this to me? I've done everything right And it was anger that was being charged in this slide. And I realized that this was me. So when I was in college, when I left college, I had everything planned. Everything was mapped out right after I left college. I was going to meet a guy. I was going to get married. We were going to love each other forever. We were going to have kids, watch our kids grow. We were going to have the house in the cul-de-sac with the cars and the job. And that was everything I had planned. And things started going that way. I met a guy. We got married. We had kids. 
we decided to build a duplex, and I wasn't too excited about the duplex, but the idea was that we would build a duplex, live on one side, rent out the other, and continue saving for the house of our dreams. So things were on the right track. We started a family, we had kids, and how many of you guys know a lot of times that track is derailed? So my track became derailed, and my husband left me, and I'm sitting in this duplex that I don't really like, um, with my two kids wondering what happened. And so through time, um, I was able to, well, I went to divorce recovery class. And so when I went to divorce recovery, cla- recovery class, they give you the story. And at that time, I was angry. I didn't think this was very helpful. So if I'm dissing it and you guys thought it was helpful, I'm, I'm sorry. But they tell you this story that you are getting ready for a trip and you're going to Italy and you're excited about this trip and you're packing your bags, you've got your itinerary, you've been saving up for this trip for years and you're excited about going to Italy. So you get on the plane and and you're landing the plane and all of a sudden the captain says, I'm sorry, we had to reroute the trip. We are now in Holland. And so the idea behind the divorce recovery is It doesn't matter what land you're in. You've changed land, but it's still a place in which you can thrive. At that point, I was just angry. I'm like, that sucks. I hate cold weather. You know, (laughs) wrong story for me. That's not any helpful at all. Um, So I was angry. But shortly afterwards, um, I met a guy. Well, I didn't meet him. I met back up with a guy that I went to school with, uh, fell in love We got married. I had to say that this sermon because last sermon I said we just lived with each other. (laughs) We got married. Um, I now had four kids because he had two and I had two. We moved into this beautiful, we had this beautiful home. We had the cars, the camper and everything. John had a business, but the business fell apart. We lost the house. Um, And here I am 10 years later back in the same duplex that I've hated for so many years. And so I realized when I saw this slide that I have been angry at life. Here I am about 50 years old. About 50, I am 50. Here I am 50 years old and sitting in the same duplex, angry at life because, you know, I tithed. I went to church. I did everything that I could possibly do to have this beautiful life. And life had not given me what I wanted. So this really hit me. Um. So let me tell you something. Part of what this is, is this is the culture of lack. Our country deals with the culture of lack. What we have, let me show you um, this slide real quick. Whoa. This is a problem with technology today. This is such a great slide. Okay, let me show you this slide. Um, how many of you guys... When you first saw the slide, saw the profiles of the old man and the old lady. How many of you saw that first? Show of hands. Okay. How many first saw the man with guitar and he's sitting next to a guy with a bottle and there's a woman in the background? How many of you guys saw that scene? Okay. How many of you guys saw first the golden chalice or candlestick or whatever that is in between? Anybody see that? Okay, that took me the, I think I saw that the third time. What this is, is a lot of times we put things, there's two different things. There's foreground and background. 
And foreground is what we focus on first. So if you saw the two profiles of the man and the woman, that means that you are putting them in the foreground and in the background you are putting the pictures of the man and the guitar and his friend. Or if you saw the man and the guitar and his friend, you were putting that in the foreground and in the background was the profile. Same thing with our attitudes. We tend to put things in the foreground that we want to focus on and everything in the background we really don't see. And if you guys try to look at this picture, it's very hard to see all three pictures at the same time because that's really not how our brain operates. We want to foreground and background things. So what I decided was I live in a culture of lack, and what I was doing was foregrounding the lack and putting in the background everything else. But that's, you know, we live in this culture. I want to read something to you. It's called The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist, and it was found in the Brene Brown website. Um, actually, before I do that, when I first saw this slide, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is me. I'm angry. And I started thinking about everything that was missing in my life. I didn't have a house. I didn't, you know, lots of things that I was thinking of that I lacked. I mean, I still love my husband. He wasn't on my list. <laughs> but, um, but I was thinking of all the things that I lacked. And I saw this and I thought, I do not want to be this angry person in life. And how many of you guys know that when you have these times in your life, if you look, God is giving everything you need to restructure and relive, I mean, to, to get better with what you want to do. You just have to look for it. So I saw this slide, and then I went to a professional development at school, and I saw um, a video by Brene Brown, which is a very similar stuff of what I was dealing with. And, I, and my whole world opened up on some things that I needed to change. And what I realized was that I had my lack. Everything that was missing in my life is what I was focusing on. And it was like the generator of my anger. It was the generator of my discontent. And I started reading about this idea of lack. And on Brene Brown's website, or on her blog, she quotes The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. And I'm going to read this to you. Our society is often geared and focused on scarcity and what we lack. For me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of, or not en of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of our hours in the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. We don't have enough exercise. We don't have enough work. We don't have enough profits. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough wilderness. We don't have enough weekends. Of course, we don't have enough money ever. We're not thin enough. We're not smart enough. We're not pretty enough or fit enough or educated or successful enough or rich enough ever. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds race with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to the reverie of lack. 
What begins as a simple expression of the hurried life or even the challenged life grows into the great justification for an unfulfilled life. I thought that was pretty, shows you what our society is like. Consider, when we are born and one of the first experiences we have, or or by the time we're five, we end up going through our formal education. And that, that may either be homeschooled, it may be a private school or a public school, but in our education, we're always hearing what we need to work on to fix ourselves. We lack this. We lack the ability to do this. So it's focused on our lack. Even as a teacher, when I was preparing for classes in my lesson plans, it was through the lens of what are we lacking? What are my students lacking? Very rarely did I focus my lesson plans on these are the strengths of my student. How are we going to make those strengths overcome what we need? And it's a whole different mindset. Now that I'm working at a school counselor, here's what I see. I see kids that come into me because they don't have the right number of friends. Or maybe they're, they feel like something is lacking within them because they have no friends. And then when you think about some of the teens that are out there, our young adults who are into Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, um, musically, it's all about who's following me or the lack of people that are following me, the counting of friends. We give trophies to everyone on the team because we are afraid of celebrating someone's success. We, miss, we want to make sure that the person that may be lacking the trophy would get a trophy. And in, so what we end up is with teens who feel as if they are owed a reward for something they did not work for. And these same teens may lack the ability to celebrate the success of the one person's strengths. We live in a society where we believe that there are limited resources out there. And somehow, I better get my share. And if I don't, I'm miserable and feel as if I'm left out. One thing that I saw this, I saw this really in Vegas. And we have to go almost every year to Vegas because my kids have done national competition for dance in Vegas. So we go. And the kids go off on their workshop. I'm not really much into gambling. I'll get a $10, like, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, the things this $10 can win me. And I go to the casinos. I throw it in. Five minutes later, it's gone. You know, you're like, oh, that was fun, you know. Um, so what I end up doing is I end up just wandering throughout Vegas. And if anybody's been through Vegas, the architecture there is amazing. It's interesting because you can look at the architecture. It's probably made mostly out of plaster to look like marble, you know, when you look at some of this architecture. But everything is set up to be posh, luxurious. Uh, it looks like palaces and villas. And you go into the malls and you see $1,500 pair of shoes. And I'm really into shoes, you know, but not $1,500. You see $300 shirts and everything that you can't afford. You see restaurants with this most amazing food that's expensive and entertainment that you would love to see that you can't because it's too expensive. And I thought, wow, this this town's really after every dime that you win. But now that I'm looking at things through a a lens of lack and abundance, what I really think the trick of Vegas is, is they want to show you what it's like to be rich, what it's like to live a luxurious life. And if you feel that sense of that lacking, that you're lacking this luxury, that you're lacking these riches, that you're more willing to go and gamble to be, to be rich. 
And I think that's really the trick there, is they're trying to get you to feel that sense of lack so that you go and you try to make up for it in the casinos. Focusing on lack makes you focus on your defeats and inadequacies more than your strengths and accomplishments. So it's almost like you're putting the lack in the foreground or back behind you're forgetting the strengths and the resilience that you have in life. A couple of years ago, I, asked, I, I was, felt impressed. I, I don't like to say God told me, but I felt impressed to start studying about King Saul and King David. And you have to understand, I've been teaching middle school way too long. I think it warps the brain. I don't think it's good for you. There should be like a surgeon general on there that says, do not teach middle school for too long, right? It should be like an education, Department of Education warning. But anyway, so I started looking at Saul, King Saul and David, and I'm thinking, what is up with Samuel? I, I don't understand Samuel. And I don't want to be irreverent because you don't want to diss a prophet of God, Right? But what kind of prophet anoints one king only to, it seems like a short amount of time later, anoint another king and have them fight over the kingdom for a whole book? I'm thinking, what is that? It's almost like, and here's where my brain goes, and this is why it's warped, because it's almost like a girl who wants to go to prom and can't make up her mind. So she says yes to one guy, and then she says yes to another guy, and then she's sitting at prom trying to juggle the two, right? Not that we've ever tried doing that, right? So she sits there and she says, no, really, you're my guy, you're my guy. And then she's got the other guy hanging out in the background that, that says, wait a minute, I'm your date, right? Isn't, this, isn't that kind of strange? Is, am I just warped? I'm, I'm, I've been with, yeah. But anyway, so I I started looking at this. I'm thinking, what is this about with King Saul and King David? So I started putting them next to each other. Um, And I started looking at King Saul. And just so we're all on the same story, you've got the Israelites are being ruled by a prophet, or, or, or I guess directed by a prophet, And you have these Philistines on the outskirts that are kind of terrorist group. And so they're getting picked on by the Philistines. And the Israelites are thinking, they're looking at Samuel's sons thinking, oh my goodness, we're in trouble. Because apparently the sons were kind of like a mess. And so they're looking at the sons and they're thinking, we want a king. We want someone to unite us, to help us military-wise so that these Philistines aren't picking on us. So Samuel, who really didn't think it was a good idea, took it to God, and God said, fine, if they want a king, they can have a king. So Samuel's task was to go and find a man to be king of the Israelites. So at the same time, you have Saul, who's going around looking for his father's donkeys, which, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Anyway, so he's going around looking for his donkeys with his servants. And Saul looks at his servant, and his servant says, why don't we go and ask a prophet where the donkeys are? Well, that makes sense, right? So they start going to the town of the prophet, and as they are walking through the gate to go see Samuel, Samuel is walking out of the gate to see who's going to be king, and God tells Samuel, this is the man you want to make king. So Saul, uh, Samuel comes up to Saul, and he tells him that he wants him to be king. Well, everybody kind of knows that story, right? Now, I've always been told, I haven't always been told, but in a lot of cases what I've been told is that Saul is a depiction 
of the old man in sin trying to rule a kingdom. And that David is a depiction of the new covenant who's ruling the kingdom with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard that before. But I saw something really interesting about Saul. You see, um, this is in 1 Samuel 10, so if you guys want to look at the story. But Samuel, I'm going to read the first part of it. Samuel's got Saul, and he's about ready to anoint him king. So here we are. So then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over over his inheritance? So this is the first thing we need to understand. Saul was anointed to rule over an inheritance, right? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb in Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you the two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gilbeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. Listen to this. The spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled... Do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know this about Saul. He was anointed. He was changed to where he could prophesy. And he was changed into a different person. And then God said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it. That sounds like us today, right? We become a new person when we accept Christ. We are anointed. We are given the Holy Spirit. So I'm thinking maybe Saul really isn't supposed to be represented as the man in sin. Maybe what God's trying to do is give us a contrast. I'm going to show you as I go. So as you read, Samuel does a pretty good job for a while. But then the Philistines are getting really ticked off. So they're like, we're going to do away with the Israelites. We're just going to get rid of them. So the Philistines took all of their chariots, all of their men, and they put them up and they set to war. So you've got all of the camp sitting out in front of Saul. Saul gets together his army, which he thinks is small. He thinks we've got a small army. We don't have enough weapons. And he's getting a little afraid. Also, he's got to wait on Samuel for seven days for Samuel to come and do an offering. So as he's sitting there waiting for the Philistines, and you see the Philistines just getting bigger and bigger, the people on his army begin to get scared and scatter. During this time, however, and, well, and then Saul gets upset. It's the seventh day. Samuel's not there, and he decides to go ahead and do the offering because he's getting worried. But during this time, there's an interesting thing that happens. Saul has a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan snuck away from the camp. He didn't talk to his father. He didn't um, tell anybody that he was leaving, but he snuck away with his armor bearer. And he goes to a cliff 
Uh, he goes to an outpost, and I'm going to read this in um, Samuel, First Samuel. So on, he goes to this outpost on a cliff that stood north of Michmash and the other side of toward uh, Jeba. And John said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So he's looking at the same militant force that Saul's looking at. His armor bearer says something really interesting. He says, do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then. We will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. They were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them unto the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hand and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and the armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about a half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field and those in the outpost and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was panic sent by God. Saul's lookout at Gilbia and Benjamin in Benjamin, saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. So basically what Saul ends up doing is he ends up mustering his forces and they end up going and defeating the Philistines on that day. So here's the two differences. Let's look at the contrast. When you look at Saul... Saul was a man who thought about lack. He said to himself, he, he said to himself, we don't have enough weapons. We don't have enough men. We're waiting on Samuel. Everything that he was thinking of was lack. We don't have our prophet. We don't have our weapons. We don't have our men. But Jonathan, on the other hand, was thinking something different. Jonathan was focused on what he had. He had himself. He had his armor bearer and he had God. He was focused on the fact that he was enough for the day. Another story that we're going to see, too, is, and you're more familiar with this one, is, again, remember we had King Saul, and then Samuel decided to anoint King David. So you've got two anointed kings, both of which have been promised a kingdom. So let's look at David. He anointed David. And you all know the story about David becoming, um, he's bringing his dinner to his brothers, and he goes, and once again, here's Saul. I think it's, it's quite a trend with Saul. He's sitting there, and he's waiting around for someone to fight Goliath. So when David goes into the camp, he asks, what are you guys all doing? They're all waiting, and you've got this giant Goliath. Saul is waiting for someone to take on armor and, and take out the Philistines. So once again, here you have Saul waiting because he's thinking of lack. He's thinking we're missing the man to fight the Philistines. 
David comes up, and he's not as tall in stature as Saul. All he has is his five stones and his slingshot. And he looks at the giant, and he says, I am enough. In fact, they offered David armor, and he said it didn't fit, so he took it off, and he's like, nope, I am enough. I have proven myself in the fields with the sheep. I know what my slingshot can do. I know my strengths. I know what I have. I know what I can do. I know my God. And he goes up to the Philistine, and I like to teach this to kids. He takes him out, and he cuts off his head, you know, and then he shows that he can kill the Philistines. I truly believe that the contrast between Saul, King Saul, and the contrast between David gives us a choice. God's saying, when you are a Christian, you are anointed. You are full of the Holy Spirit, and you have a choice in your life. Do what your hands can do, but you can either take on Saul and be a person that thinks about lack and puts that on your foreground, or you can be a David who thinks about abundance, who knows that he's enough, and you can be either one. I give you the choice. When we think about David, we are thinking about the heart of David, right? And when we look at his internal landscape, David was all about praise because when David became king, he started up a whole temple of praise, which tells me that David's heart was with abundance, not lack. You can't really praise, you don't have the heart of praise if you're thinking of lack. So when you look at David's heart, he was set on praise. That was his foreground. It was The background was the lack. His foreground was a praise. You don't hear about Saul setting up a temple of praise. In fact, Saul ends up being unfulfilled, um, depressed, angry, and end up goes insane at the end of his life because of everything he thought about, about what he lacked. Let's think about our Christian community today. Are we lack in lack or are we in abundance? I, I know about me. When I went to a church, I was always told that there's one man of God. There is one anointing. There's, one, there's only like a couple prophets and maybe some evangelists out there. And there's one, you know, move of God. You know, there is never abundance. But I truly believe that God is into abundance, right? So how many of you guys have been in the prayer line where there's a huge long line? And you're discouraged at the back of the line because you want prayer and you're afraid that the power in that holy man up front is going to go out of him by the time you get up to the beginning of the line. (laughs) You ever had that? And so you're sitting there and you're angry and you're upset and you're angry at all the people in front of you because they're going to get the power that you're going to lose because you're at the back of the line. How many of you guys have been in the line up front dying for a word of God. You just want a word. You want a word. And you're standing there and you're like, I hope he doesn't miss me. I hope, he, I, I hope I'm speaking to you. Am I this messed up? Or are you guys? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> so you're sitting in line. You're like, I'm hoping he's going to touch me. I'm hoping. And so next to you, that um, man of God, he gives a word from God. And you're like, oh, cool. He's saying words from God. He's going to get to me. And he gets to you and he touches you and he moves on. And you're upset because you did not get that word from God, right? And then you go home unfulfilled, feeling like you're a loser because God didn't choose me today, right? Here's what I believe. I believe that God is into abundance, and we need to start thinking that way. 
How many of our of us today think we're such a small church and we look at all the big churches in Pueblo and we see what we're lacking and then we feel unfulfilled and not powerful. But when we look at Jonathan, when we look at David and we see that it was just one man or one man in their armor barrel that was in the heart, same heart and the same spirit, knowing that they were enough and they were the ones that made the difference in the day of battle. We are all given the, king, the keys to the kingdom. All of us are given a keys to a kingdom that we can manage. And we've got a choice. And I truly believe that we can see the contrast between Saul, Saul and the contrast between David. And we can say, which king of the kingdom are we going to be? Are we going to be the one that's unfulfilled, that's always worried about what we're lacking? Or the one that always believes that we're enough? Here's the other thing that I've seen in my life in the church. We had, I used to go to a church where we believed in the Kairos moment. And Kairos was such a big thing. In Greek it means um, a supreme moment. When we're actually listening to God, God's giving us our destiny. And if we don't, if we, if we hear it, great, we're on the path of our destiny. But if we miss it, we have derailed our life. And who, who knows how long we're going to get back on track. And so I spent a lot of my life waiting for that Kairos moment when a man of God was going to put his hand upon me and say that word, and I was going to get on track with my destiny. And here I am, 50 sin. Well, that never happened. Never found my Kairos moment, right? Because that was within my foreground. But I'm starting to think differently. I think that God gives a, he's a God of abundance. And it doesn't matter what moment we choose or what situation we choose remember he's a god of infinity so i think any kind of situation is going to have a desirable end if we say i'm enough we're not looking for just one destiny i don't believe that god is that limited so that if we we're always praying about god give me your will in my life give me my destiny but how do we say that god is so limited that if we miss our kairos moment We miss the one destiny that God has chosen for us. I don't believe he's like that. I think there are numbers of different outcomes that we can choose that God is going to bless. As long as we have the spirit of abundance and the fact that we are enough, that we are looking for abundance. Um, It was funny because I started looking into this. I thought, I'm not looking for abundance. So I started thinking about what I could do. And I thought, you know what? I am going to look for every single penny I can find on the street, in the couch, uh, anywhere. If I see a penny, I am going to pick it up and I'm going to celebrate it like I've won a million dollars because I'm going to start looking for abundance. And it was funny because I was sharing this with my daughter yesterday and she says, well, you know, when I was over at Albertsons, there were three pennies by the air pump over by Albertsons. And I'm like, great, we get in the car. We go down to Albertsons. I pick up the three pennies. I'm like, woo-hoo, yee-hoo, I got a million. And I started a little penny jar that I'm going to do. And I'm also playing that stupid, I shouldn't say stupid, sorry, that Monopoly game that you get from Safeway where you get 50 million tickets, right? Yeah. So I've been playing this, right? I'm walking yesterday, and I'm walking down the trail, and I see at the side of the trail a little Monopoly ticket. And I'm walking with a friend, 
And I go over and I pick up the ticket and I'm like, I found a ticket. I found, look, it's a Monopoly ticket. I put it in my pocket and she's like, okay, that was weird, but okay. But I am going to start looking for abundance in my life and celebrating the things that I have and who I am as a person because I am enough. I am absolutely enough. This is how we also want to think as a church. We want to look at each other and we want to view each other here in this church as you are enough. Within you is an anointing that God has given you. It is um, a celebration. God has given you everything you need to create 50 million destinies. You don't just have one destiny. We don't want to pigeonhole people and say, well, that was your destiny. I think God has a multitude of destinies. And too many times as a church, we have waited on what we think was a limited supply of anointing, was a limited supply of faith, or we have looked to the person that we thought had the supply of the anointing, had the supply of faith, instead of realizing that we have everything that God has given us to to rule our kingdom like a David or a Jonathan. We need to face our problems in life Not with Saul saying, this is what I lack. I mean, really, I went to school for four years to be a school counselor. First day on the job, I'm thinking, I learned nothing. (laughs) You know, because I was thinking about what I lacked. And and it was overwhelming. For a whole year, it was overwhelming. Because I'm thinking, people look at me, well, you're the counselor. I'm like, I don't know. So I've decided I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm going to look at what I have. And I'm going to say to myself, I am enough. I have what it takes to beat the Philistines, to beat the biggest battle. And I'm going to start looking for armor bearers and people around me that are willing to do the same thing. I truly believe that our church has the spirit in which to do this. And even though we're small, we're mighty. And I could see all the problems that we have in Pueblo because we have a lot of problems in Pueblo. And we have some battles that we need to fight. But I could actually see our church running out in the foreground where there is where people in, in Pueblo don't know what to do with us, that they're becoming overwhelmed and the things that are challenges in our city are being defeated. And I could see all the other churches following like Saul behind us saying, okay, we're going now. Think about if we had a feeling of abundance, what that could do to this town. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to challenge you here today. We're doing communion because this is our first day of the month. And when they were asking me about my sermon, they said, do you want to do an altar call? And I thought, you know, that, that kind of scares me anyway. I, I, I don't know what I would do with an altar call. But they, they were asking me, if you had a, do you want an altar call? And I thought, no, I don't want to do an altar call because a lot of times altar call is about lack. You go up there because I'm lacking the funds to, to make it through life. I'm lacking um, faith, and you're wanting someone to, to feed your lack. I don't think I want to do an altar call. What I want to do today is a celebration. We have communion. We have bread. Saul was given bread, and they were carrying wine. And he had the choice that day to make his life what he wanted to make his life. And I truly believe that Saul could have taken up a Jonathan spirit, or a David spirit, and he could have changed his life. 
So today we've got the bread and we've got the wine. And I'm challenging you today to put in the foreground the abundance that we have and to make life more of a celebration, to make you as a celebration. So basically you're getting a trophy today. You're the one that we're celebrating for your accomplishments. Um, I guess I'm giving you all a trophy, but with the different spirits, right? So I want you guys to celebrate you. I want to celebrate everybody in this room saying you're enough. We're going to celebrate the Jonathan and the David spirit that says we can accomplish great things only with our God and what, what, what we have to offer. So that's what I, the spirit that I want you to come with today when we do communion.